Samuel chapter 8. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. You want a king? You got one. I added that verse. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Maybe you heard, yesterday in Douglas County, Nebraska, Democratic Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God. Yes, God is being taken to court. He's asking for a, quote, permanent injunction ordering the defense, God in this case, to cease harmful activities and assist the making of terroristic threats. Citing that, quote, the defendant directly and proximately has caused fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, and pestilential plagues. Now, Chambers has done this. It's an actual court case now. He has actually filed suit against God, seeking an injunction against God. He's doing it for a reason. He has an agenda. He's trying to point out the frivolous lawsuits, he says, brought about mostly by the religious right. 
But I heard this and I thought, an injunction against God. Talk about taking it even a step further. Every time that I think we've gone about as far from the Lord in our country as we can, we go one further. America goes one further. Now, it's bad enough that in America we've tried to remove God or symbols of God or things that remind people of God from public places and from the schools. Now, now we have a senator who is putting an injunction against God saying cease and desist. And I really don't think we want God to cease and desist. Because if the Lord truly ceased and desisted, Colossians 1.17 tells us he is, before, he is before all things and in Him all things hold together. So if God were to literally cease and desist, we would blow apart. We would cease to exist if He ceased and desisted. So this guy is coming out and he's wanting an injunction against God. Look again at verse 7 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And that's where we're headed. The rejection of God from being king over us. And when a people reject God, they get what they ask for. And that's what chapter 8 is about. Now we're going to go into chapter 8 in depth on Sunday morning. But what's going on here is God tells them, I'm going to give you what you asked for. But before I give you what you asked for, let me tell you what that is. Let me explain it to you. If you go back and read it over, and I encourage you to do so between now and Sunday, the Lord lays out what He calls, I love it, the procedure of the king. His policy manual, as it were. And the king's policy manual is bad news for the people. And they will get to a day where they cry out and say, Lord, save us from this idiot who is in office. I didn't elect her, him. I didn't have anything to do with this. (laughs) And the Lord will say, I'm sorry, I'm not listening because you got exactly what you asked for. See, he's a very good God. He gives us what we ask for. You want that? Are you sure? Well, Israel, if you're sure, this is the people's choice. The people's choice. That's that's what I'm going to title the message on Sunday. Maybe, unless I come up with something more snappy. The people's choice is what chapter 8 is all about. We want a king. Look, we're in a theocracy here. I am your king, God says. No, 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 no. We want the monarchy. And everything that comes with it. And so the Lord says, okay, I'll give it to you. Back in chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel had spoken to the people and he said, If you would return to the Lord with all your heart and remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines if you return to Him and focus on Him. But the people would rather have an injunction against God and go for a human king. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, a verse many of you are familiar with, especially if you are into and about praying for America. You have heard this verse. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So gracious is our God. If you'll just humble yourselves and pray. If you'll repent, just come back to me. And this has been the key for 4,000 years of man's relating to God, the Lord saying, I will establish you. I will heal your land. All you have to do is humbly come back to me. Pray to me. Talk to me. We are well on our way to losing God nationally. I pray the church corporately will not misunderstand this. I pray that you and I personally 
will always be called back to that heart of repentance, that humble place where we will pray to the Lord and He will heal our land. And He will restore our lives and He will protect us from our Philistines. Well, we'll come back to this on Sunday, but I wanted to start and run through that chapter because it's a background to the next three. It lays the foundation for the procedures and for the first king of Israel. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, and the son of Bechoroth, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. That word valor probably is better translated wealth. It's a wealthy man, this guy named Kish, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel from his shoulders and up he was taller than any of the people. Interesting. Saul's name means requested. People requested a king and the name Saul meaning requested was given to them. Their request is answered. Now they don't choose Saul. The people don't. God does. But understand what the Lord does in choosing Saul as the first king is he gives them what they're asking for. I've said this before, I do not believe Saul was God's first choice for a king. I believe it was David. The line of David. Because of a curse that was on the line of the tribe of Judah, it had to be ten generations before a king could sit on the throne in Judah. And David was that person. David would have been arrived right at the right time for God to put him in as the first king of Israel had Israel waited for God's timing. But they wanted a king and they wanted him now. And so the Lord chose Saul for the people, but he was still the people's choice. His choice reflects exactly what they demand. Because Saul looks the part. He looked the part of a king like the other nations had. Head and shoulders above all the rest. Now, we get the idea some that, that I mean, he was choice and he was handsome and he was taller. But he might have been kind of bony and spindly too. We don't know. He was just head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He could look out over the crowd. And this was impressive. But when God chooses David, he makes the distinction between God's choice and man's choice. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. He will say to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we're going to see that that's where the problem, over the next few weeks, that's where the problem lies with Saul. It's a heart problem. He looks the part, but he doesn't have the heart. Verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, He said, Take now with you one of the servants and arise and go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they didn't find them. They didn't find them there. Verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will be anxious for us. And he said to him, Behold now, there's a man of God in this city, and the man is held in high honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. And then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? The bread's gone from our sack, and there's there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God, and and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, verse 9 tells us, When a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. 
or he who is called a prophet was formerly called a seer because he saw things he could see ahead they called him a seer makes sense then Saul said to his servant well said come let's go so they went to the city where the man of God was as they went up the slope to the city they found young women going out to draw water and they said to them is the seer here and they answered and said he is see the seer here see okay he is ahead of you hurry now for he has come into the city today for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today as soon as you enter the city you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice afterwards those who are invited will eat will eat now therefore go up for you will find him at once so they went up to the city as they came into the city behold Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place so there's a feast that day there's apparently a big meal that's being planned for it Samuel the seer this prophet is heading up to the meal and the women say hey just look for him because he's headed that direction and you'll find him so out he comes at the same moment verse 15 tells us this now a day before Saul's coming the Lord had revealed this to Samuel saying about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me interesting verse 15 it tells us that the Lord let Samuel in on this whole thing a day ahead now Saul's just out looking for lost donkeys he's busy about finding his, his father's you know, the, the things of his father's work his dad's business he's out looking for these things he doesn't really know what's going on he doesn't have a clue he's not looking to rule he's not looking to reign but Samuel the day before is told by the Lord go find this man anoint him he's the one I'm calling to be king it reminds me again that the Lord speaks audibly to Samuel and Samuel hears him remember the boy Samuel back in the temple heard the Lord speak to him saying Samuel and he said here I am and he thought it was Eli remember back and forth and back and forth finally in the fourth time Samuel gets it Eli gets it it's the Lord calling Samuel hears the voice of the Lord it's something that we long for something we talk about something we desire hearing God can we really hear God I like this word in verse 15 it says that the Lord had revealed this to Samuel the word revealed literally the Lord uncovered the ear of Samuel uncovered his ear now I have ear trouble every now and then I think it's from playing drums when I was growing up but my ears get clogged and there comes a point usually about every six to eight months or so where I've got to go to the doctor or I, sometimes I'll try and buy over the counter stuff just to get the clog out and it doesn't work too well so I end up going to the doctor and they've got this this thing I don't know if you've ever had your ears how many people have had their ears cleaned at the doctor? Okay, a few of you so you know what I'm talking about they have this, this metal device that looks like you can wear it to go deep sea diving okay and, and this tube that comes out of it and they crank this thing up and put it in your ear and there's all kinds of pressure and the water's usually pretty warm and it really feels like he's going to blow your brains right out the other side of your head okay and he does this and, and, and you know you hold this little cup here and you're waiting and you're waiting and all of a sudden you can hear and then you look in your cup and you understand why it's nasty waxy gunky goo that goes on inside my head <laughs> isn't it incredible what our heads produce I won't get into that any further but just, it's just amazing to me suddenly I hear like like high pitches you know I, I hear the, the highs in people's voices and it's incredible 
And I wonder how we get our ears unclogged to hear the Lord. Because the Bible is clear, as we've talked about many times recently. The Bible is clear. God speaks to us. He does speak. The problem is not with His voice. It's with our clogged ears. It's with the wax and the junk and the buildup in there from our lives that get in the way. So how do we uncover the ear? How do we get to where we hear in the way that Samuel so obviously and so clearly heard the Lord? And Samuel does his whole life. Has conversations with God. Hears from the Lord. How do we uncover the ear? Think back. Remember when we started Samuel, there were three things I said would stand out in the writings of Samuel in this period in Israel's history. The rise of the kingdom. The rise of the prophets. And number three, the raising up of prayer. You're going to know an awful lot about prayer as we study through here, as we read. You're going to see people praying and understand how to pray even better, which is one of the great things about this book. Uncovering near to hear God has everything to do, listen to me, with how I speak to God. What I'm saying simply is this. If you want to hear God better, you need to talk to God more. Because the way I pray impacts the way I hear The listening and the speaking are both important, critical, vital aspects of prayer. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. He says, I therefore will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Men, this is what I want for you. That you would lift up your hands in prayer. Not arguing and debating and going on and on about stupid things. Lift up your hands in prayer. Men. And then he turns around and says to women, and listen carefully, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. (laughs) Some of the women are going, okay, we're we're on that sexist line right here. Let me explain something. And, and you know, forgive me if I'm wrong, but who speaks more, men or women? Okay, see, all the women said that, too. Right there. See, they, they, they even speak more when they're answering the question. The guys are like, I'm not answering that because i got to ride home with her. There's a tendency for women to speak more. It's, it's a natural thing, and then men sit around kind of with Russ's expression on their face, you know. You know, just women. So what Paul says, he speaks independently, and he is talking about prayer. And he speaks to men about prayer, and he says, I want you to pray. In other words, guys, you've got to learn to open your mouths and pray. You've got to learn to speak to the Lord. And not to feel like you're silly or strange or odd. You, man, speak. Open your mouth and pray, gentlemen. Ladies, you've got to learn to close your mouths and listen. And I don't mean that offensively. But Paul is speaking by the Holy Spirit to the heart of men and women. Men, you need to learn to pray. Women, you need to learn to listen in prayer. Both are aspects of prayer. Both are equally important. Speaking to the Lord and listening to the Lord. And I think the Holy Spirit is just dialing in a little bit to our nature here and saying, ladies, you want to be deeper in your prayer? Listen. 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 Guys, you want to be able to hear God? you got to start by speaking to Him. Talk to Him. Pray. If you look back at verse 21 of chapter 8, it says, Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. He's praying. He's talking to God. The people are saying, No, we want a king. So Samuel goes back to God, and he goes, Lord, I know you say give them what they want. This is what they want. And I don't know what to do about this. It's really frustrating. It's really discouraging. 
You just see Samuel in this conversation with God, repeating what was said, sharing, speaking to the Lord, and then you get to chapter 9, verse 15, and suddenly the Lord now is uncovering the ear of Samuel. Because their life was a dialogue. It was a two-way conversation. Not one way just speaking, not one way just listening. It was both. Speaking and listening prayer. And the prayerful principle here is that the Lord uncovers the ears of those who speak into His hearing. So talk to Him. I never hear God. When was the last time you talked to Him? I wonder if the Lord ever says about any of us, I never hear Rick. Man, I just wish I could hear Rick. I'd love to hear from Rick. I wonder if Rick talks to me. Well, I'd love for Rick to talk to me, but I don't know. Does he really talk to me? I know he talks to other people. I think he does. Does he talk to me? I mean, that's what we say about God, isn't it? I know he talks to others. I just wish he would talk to me. Well, maybe he's saying the same about us. He just talked to me. And then listen. If you want to hear from the Lord, you need to speak to the Lord. And we've talked a lot about prayer, but the reality is prayer is one of the hardest things to do for Christians. It takes time to dial down and really be in the presence of God. It's not like just throwing off a laundry list. It's not that easy. In our world where everything is going like this, everything is fast-paced, get it done, you got it all right before you, the computers are faster, the thinking is faster, the media is faster, and God's saying, yeah, but if you want to hear from me, you're going to have to move slower. You're going to have to pause and stop and dial down and wait. And you may be praying for hours before you hear from the Lord. Days before you hear from the Lord. Why? Because we hear from him and we're done. Oh, cool, that's what I wanted. And off we go. And he's saying, I'm not going to say anything until we've had some time together. Communion. Fellowship. That's where his heart is. Prayer demands both our spoken intentions and our quiet attention. And it's both. And that's what Samuel has with the Lord. He's troubled by the people's choice and their request for a king, so he repeats the whole thing to the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Petition is asking. Prayer is not necessarily asking. Prayer is presence. That's good. Write that down. Prayer is presence. It is sitting in the presence of Almighty God. It is being at the feet of our Savior Jesus. It is being in His presence and letting the world fall away. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. Never stop. Let your life be a conversation with the Lord. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.7, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Samuel understood this. He understood how to pray. Don't expect to hear from the Lord if you're not speaking into the Lord's hearing. Verse 17 going on. So when Samuel saw Saul, back to our story, remember Saul's out looking for the donkeys and and they go into this town and now Samuel sees him coming, he knows he's coming and the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. So he's hearing God again. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and he said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not, let your mind be on, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's 
household. In other words, you're a wanted man, Saul. You are desired in Israel. You don't even know it. Israel doesn't even know it quite yet. But you're the guy. You're the man that they are hungering for. You are going to be the king. Verse 21, Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? And then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside. And so the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. In other words, the whole feast that's going on that day was for Saul. Samuel planned it out. This wasn't that he happened upon a feast of Samuel. It was a feast of Samuel to honor Saul out looking for the donkeys. It's amazing how God sets this up. And Samuel's listening and so he's saying this. And Saul's got to be freaking out at this point. I mean, think about it. If it were you, you're just out looking for a lost dog. And next thing you're, you're sitting at the head of a banquet and it's in your honor. Because they knew you were coming. So he's out there. This feast set up ahead of time. And this piece of meat was set aside for him. What is this piece of meat? This is important. It's the leg. In Hebrew, it's the shok. It's that meat from the calf muscle that's set aside for Saul. And it's perfect because it, indicate, it indicates strength and power and muscle. Something you want in a king. At least something the other nations wanted in their kings. And Israel wanted a king like the other nations. Someone powerful and strong. Someone who stood head and shoulders above, above other people. The shok, the calf muscle... But it's interesting to note that it's not the breast meat, which would be the area about the heart. It indicates something about Saul ahead of time. He will outwardly be strong and externally tough, but he will not be a king of great heart. That is reserved for David, Israel's next king, who is God's true choice. A man who's inwardly tender with the heart of a shepherd in great spiritual depth, and you will see the difference. So he's, he's handed the shok, the leg, that calf muscle, and he begins to eat. And verse 25 says, When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. In other words, they went up to the roof, and you'll see this in the next couple of verses, but they often would sleep on the roof when they were visiting other places. So Saul's up there on the roof and speaking with, with Samuel. And it says the next morning, verse 26, they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Saul said, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on. But you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now I want you to pause here for a moment. All this is happening. He's had the feast. He spent the night. The next morning, they're heading out of the town. Samuel says, send the servant on. i got to talk to you. Stand still. Stand still. Remain here now. I'm going to tell you the word of the Lord. He pulls out a flask of oil and anoints Saul and calls him king. Amazing. There's a lot going on here. We need to understand something about this idea of anointing. 
Anointing a king was not a new idea with Israel. It was a, an historical idea. The nations around Israel were already doing it. We know this archaeologically. We know historically. At this time, the nations around Israel, the Canaanite nations that were still around, those nations anointed their kings. But they didn't use oil. The nations surrounding them would use things like animal fat. They anointed their kings with lard. Why would they do this? Ox fat. Cow fat. Bull fat. Because they believe that by anointing their king with the fat of a bull, somehow that strength of the bull, that power of the ox would seep in and make the string, the king strong. Would make him powerful. Would make him like the ox. They, they truly believed this using animal fats. God, on the other hand, for Israel, prescribes something completely different. Pure olive oil. Keep your finger there and go back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord speaking through Moses tells the people about what it's going to be like when they have a king. What the king is required to do and or be. And verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 17 says, You will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Now skip on down. It says in verse 18, It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The king comes into power, and he is first called to write a copy of the law for himself. Write out the whole thing. We're talking Torah here. Five chapters from the beginning, the creation, all the way through to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the king was to copy it down for himself. And then every day the rest of his life he was to read through it daily, in the word, constant reading of it. There's a connection here because the idea of the olive oil tells us several things. It implies a king who must be rooted in the word of God, like an olive tree is rooted. A king who's in the word, like a, a tree planted beside streams of water, Psalm 1 tells us. A king is to be someone who is spiritually fruitful, as the olive tree is fruitful. And it's amazing, the olive tree in Israel is a tough tree. There are olive trees standing today in the Garden of Gethsemane that have been there 2,000 years. In fact, if you go to Israel and look at those trees, you may be looking at olive trees that were there the night Jesus was betrayed. And they're gnarly and tough and, and twisted and still producing fruit even in that land a king is to produce fruit spiritually he is to be rooted in the word and he is to provide covering for the people like the olive tree spread out and provide shade in a land that needs shade the king is supposed to be that way the olive tree indicates these things but you know much more than that the oil itself the olive oil that pure oil is a type of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible we see it again and again. God's Spirit is represented by the oil. And so for a king to be anointed indicated the infusion of God's Spirit on his life. While, while the king of the nations was being anointed with animal lard, thinking that the spirit of the ox was going to enter this man and make him strong, God's king would have the Spirit of the Lord 
in him, upon him, with him. But what would have happened to Saul if he had said to Samuel, Look, dude, I appreciate the dinner invitation. It's great, it was fun and all, but i got to get looking for my dad's donkeys. i got work to do. Had he been so concerned about his donkeys that he needed to go off and look for them, he might have missed his anointing. And gang, we can do that. We can be so concerned about our donkeys that we miss the anointing that God has for us. You notice what Samuel did when Saul came on the scene? Back in verse 19 of chapter 9. He says, I'll let you go and I'll tell you what's on your mind in the morning. But he says, you eat with me today. Stop. I want you to eat with me today. Samuel or Saul is in a hurry. He's looking for donkeys. He's already three days out. He's already worried that his dad is worried about him. And Samuel says, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Let's eat. Let's, let's commune together. Let's, let's share a meal. Let's hang out. Down in verse 27 of chapter 9. He again says at the end of verse 27, You remain standing that I may proclaim the word of God to you. He's really slowing Saul down. And if Saul had been in a hurry, if Saul had been looking for and dealing with practical life obligations, he may have missed his anointing altogether. And we can do that. And we're so concerned about the donkeys of our lives. So concerned about the business, getting things done. We're chasing donkeys. And what's great is, the father understands when we're chasing donkeys. So he says, look, I got the donkeys covered. Samuel says, they they were found three days ago. They're they're fine. Don't worry about the donkeys. They're covered. I'll take care of the donkeys. But I want you to stop first and commune with me. See, we think the opposite. I've got to get this stuff done. I'll go to Bible study, but I've got to get my work done today. And if I can't, I ain't going. I'll I'll spend some time in prayer with the Lord tonight, but I've got so much that I've got to finish. And in an age where we have laptops and cell phones and work follows us home and everywhere we go, we're never done. The Lord says, look, the donkeys will wait. I'll take care of the donkeys if you will commune with me. If you'll pause and, and be with me. Come to the table and worship. Come and listen to the word of the Lord. Feast on what he has for you. Colossians 3.2, Paul says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, not the donkeys, the heavenly things. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, John writes, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And I read that, and sometimes I think, Lord, I don't know. You tell me I have an anointing, and that's great, but I, I'm unsure of it. Gang, if we rush the Lord, we miss the anointing. Because God does not pace himself by the timetable of the world. He has his timetable and he's inviting us to be a part of it. To join him at his table. So if you're chasing donkeys tonight, stop. And come to the Lord. Speak to him. Listen to him. Commune with him. And he will anoint you. He will anoint you. Going on in chapter 10, verse 2. It tells us some important things. Listen to this. He says, when you go from me today... Samuel speaking to Saul. Then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Samuel saying, this is going to happen to you. Then he says, Then you'll go further from there and you'll come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One's going to be carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. 
This guy is definitely a prophet. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you will accept from their hand. Afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and a lyre before them and they will be prophesying. By the way, by the way, there's something interesting in scripture about music and prophecy. There's a connection. We see here with these prophets that they're, they're prophesying with the harp and tambourine and flute and lyre. They're singing. And in their singing and in their worship they are prophesying. You'll see later on in 2 Kings 3.15 that Elisha is asked for a prophecy and he says, Alright, I'll give you a prophecy, but bring me a minstrel. I, I need a musician. Bring, bring a guitar player. Bring someone with a lyre in here. Have him sit down and play and I'll prophesy. The connection is interesting there. Play the music and prophecy happens well that's going on here and verse 6 says then Samuel still speaking to Saul the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man it shall be when these signs come to you do for yourself what the occasion requires for God is with you now listen the rest of this study is so important to understand as a Christian who wants to serve the Lord as someone who wants to be involved in ministry to the Lord and for the Lord. There are some things that need to take place for those who would be anointed for service, for ministry. Number one, recognize the care of the Father. Recognize the care of the Father. Back in verse 2, Samuel said, Saul, your father doesn't care about donkeys, he cares about you. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. What do you mean by that? It's far too easy when serving the Lord when doing the work of the Lord to think He cares more for the work of your hands than the worth of your heart. And the reality is He doesn't. God is more concerned with you than He is with the donkeys. Donkeys are representative of work, of labor, of getting the job done. And especially, I'm talking about ministry here. I'm not just talking about the busyness of life. I'm talking about those who would serve the Lord. There are all kinds of ministries and things you can get involved in. And it's easy to think, man, I've got to get this done because I want to please the Lord. And he's saying, that's great, but it's a donkey. And I am more concerned about your heart than your service to the Lord. I am more concerned about your heart than the work that you are doing. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may He comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Father cares about your ministry, but He much more cares about you. And this is what we see Saul's father. Hey, he's not worried about the donkeys, Saul. He's worried about you. So as you serve the Lord, as you begin to serve the Lord in your life, recognize the care of the Father. He's more concerned with you than with what you do. Secondly, relish communion with the Son, Jesus Christ. Relish communion with Jesus. Verse 3 is so fascinating to me, and there's much here, and we'll probably come back and deal with this maybe a week from Sunday, a little bit more. But it says there are three men going up to God at Bethel, who meet you, who will meet you. One is carrying three young goats, the other one carrying three loaves of bread, and the other one carrying a jug of wine, and it all pictures Jesus. The three young goats. Guys carrying goats. And the goats recall the blood sacrifice of Yom Kippur. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. The bread and the wine are obvious elements of the Lord's Supper. Anytime you see bread and wine in Scripture, stop and look at it. Read the context. 
What's going on here? Bread and wine. Because it portrays something coming, and that is the Lord's Supper. But all three together, the goat, the bread, the wine, they point to Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus. Jesus, who instead of the goat, became our scapegoat. Instead of the one, the goat whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, no, Jesus' blood was sprinkled on our hearts to save us from our sin. Not just for atonement, as we've talked about, but for propitiation, a complete erasure of our sins. Jesus, Jesus is into communion. And not just communion as we take it Sunday in and Sunday out that we took tonight. Jesus is into communion, into fellowship with you. Think about this. John chapter 21, verse 12 after Jesus resurrected, he shows up on the shores of the Galilee. And Peter and James and John and some of the other guys, they're out there fishing and they look and they see the Lord on the shore. And Peter gets excited and does a forest gump. He jumps into the water starts swimming over as fast as he can. Gets on shore and he says, that's my boat. And then he sits down with Jesus. And what does Jesus say? John chapter 21 verse 12, he says, hey guys, come have breakfast. This is the resurrected Lord. Anybody have some bacon? Guys want to have a little breakfast? It's interesting because in Luke 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 40, it says he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, you got anything here to eat? It's, it's, so, it's just incongruous to see Jesus' hands and feet pierced, standing before them, showing himself to them and saying, Anybody got a bagel? I'm a little hungry. I'd like somebody. A little lunch would be nice. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it, Luke 24. Revelation chapter 3, in that grand appearance before John, remember the one that knocked him dead? In that appearance, Jesus says to John this, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. In those three short verses, Jesus wants breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Communion. Fellowship. And you might note, if you study this out, most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances involve food. Almost everyone, almost. He shows up and says, hey, let's eat together. Let's just sit down and eat. I mean, you, you see the heart of a father. He says, I just want to be with you. Spend some time, commune together. Jesus loves fellowship. Bible students, is Revelation 3.20 an evangelism verse? No. No, thank you. It is not a verse of evangelism. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door to me, I'll come in and dine with him. And we use that verse for evangelism, and it's not an evangelistic verse. It's a church verse. He is talking to the church, and he says, I'm knocking on the door, church. Are you going to let me in? You want to have dinner? Let's eat together. Church, hello? Open the door for me, he says, to those who, who should have the door wide open, expectantly waiting to commune with the Lord. That's what he wants. Precious communion. So we need to recognize in service to the Lord the care of the Father. We need to relish communion with the Son. And thirdly, we need to realize the Holy Spirit come upon us. The Holy Spirit come upon us. Read on, verse 6 of chapter 10. Samuel says to Saul, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you will prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. 
And you shall go down from before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. And by the way, that's going to be important later in Saul's life. Wait seven days, Saul. I'll come down. I will offer up a sacrifice. You're going to see Saul unwilling and unable to wait. And it causes a big problem. But Samuel says this at this time, verse 9, it says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Boom. Love this. And all those signs came about on that day. Everything we just read happened that day. And when they came to the hill, there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? In other words, who's your daddy? And therefore it became a proverb... Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now I want you to understand what's going on here. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit has come upon Saul. Much like the Holy Spirit will later come upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Upon them with power. The Greek word power, dunamis. And the apostles were given that power. Saul has the Holy Spirit come upon him in the same way. And the response is similar. There's an immediate response of spectators who knew Saul and they're skeptical. They see now Saul with the Holy Spirit upon him and they say, what is now Saul among the prophets? Come on. And that's what the saying, it becomes a household saying, a proverb is Saul among the prophets. It's like saying, does a snake have armpits? Same idea. They're saying it's an unlikely event. And this goes out into Israel. This, this saying is Saul among the prophets. It's like a wife asking her husband, are you getting a raise this year? And he goes, Saul among the prophets? And she'd understand. Oh, I guess not. <laughs> they didn't believe it. Holy Spirit comes upon Saul. They wouldn't buy it. And Jesus said in Mark 6, 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. We know, we know from the scriptures, Saul was instantly changed in verse 9. He has now been given a new heart. He now has the Holy Spirit upon him. God changes him. And when you give your life to Christ, this is what happens. This is promised to every believer. We're promised Acts 2.38. That when you give your life to Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. But there's more. We've talked about recently there's more that happens. The Lord also offers to pour out His Spirit upon believers even more so to give you more power for witnessing, more power for serving in the fellowship. He will give you more of His Spirit and come upon you, not only in you, but upon you. All right, I, I hear where you're going with that. I'm not sure I believe it. Well, look at the apostles. We're told that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now you read this and you might think, okay, that's when they received the Holy Spirit, right? The indwelling Holy Spirit. No. John chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus, 50 days earlier, is with the apostles. And the Bible, the Gospel tells us, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They already had the Holy Spirit by Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon them is not the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. 
to prophesy and to speak in tongues and to have great gifts to the point where Peter was so powerful Acts tells us that when he would walk along if his shadow crossed someone who was lame they could walk Jesus didn't even do that game not that Peter was more powerful than Jesus but Peter was given the same spirit the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer you're gifted with that if you believe in Jesus it's an instantaneous promise but God also promises to pour out his power now here's the problem people may have trouble accepting that in you especially people who know you there's a change in my life yeah whatever no, there's a change in my life. Yeah, did you hear the one about... There's a change in my life. Oh, come on, come on, Rick. Lighten up, will you? And it's discouraging. Because you want to be a changed man. You want to be a changed woman. And people around you are skeptical. They're naysayers. They say, yeah, whatever. It's not, it's not, you're the same guy. Aren't you the same son of the people that I know? Have you grown up in this town, Saul? And the skeptics, they surround him... And he prophesied, and when he finished, it says he came to the high place. Listen, don't be discouraged. And watch this in the story. It will unfold before you. Don't be discouraged. You don't have to defend what God has done in you. He will. Don't worry about it. You don't have to prove or defend the change in your life. You don't have to convince other people that you now have the Spirit. You know And that's good enough. God will go before you. God will be the shield. God will convince where convincing needs to happen. You don't have to. Isn't that kind of a weight off your shoulders? You've grown up maybe in a family that does not believe in Jesus, doesn't go to church, and your life has radically changed. And when you go home, you just want them to see it so bad. Right, Dan? You go back to Hawaii, you want mom and dad, you want them to see the difference. And you don't have to prove anything. All you have to do is walk out what God has done in you. And let him be the convincer. Watch this. Verse 14. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where would you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. And when we found that they could not be found, we we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me, what, what Samuel say to you? So verse 16, Saul said to his uncle, Wow, it was amazing. He said I was going to have the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be the king of Israel, and he poured his spirit out on me, and if you're reading your scriptures, you know I'm way off. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Why? He didn't have to. If it was God, it was going to happen. If it was God, it was going to come true. If it was the Lord's Spirit on him, man, you don't have to make a defense. You just have to walk it out. And so here's Saul, and he starts out really well, by the way. This whole chapter, Saul begins well. He starts off great before the Lord. He's not worried about it. Besides, Saul's uncle wouldn't believe it. Even if Saul told him what had happened, he wouldn't believe it. But he didn't have to. Read on. Verse 17 tells us, Thereafter Saul called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, and yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And thus Samuel brought all of the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So they're all gathered, and he starts to call out to show them who their king's going to be. Benjamin, come forward. So Benjamin comes down. 
And then he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its families and the Matrite family was taken. Out of Benjamin, I need the Matrites. So now they come forward. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Saul, come on down! Silence. And it was like the Von Trapp family singers. <laughs> Thought they were here. The family Von Trapp! There are those guys. Saul, come on down! And it says they therefore inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. Saul's hiding out. He's not even sure he wants the job. God says, Samuel, he's behind the red bags. Yeah, right there. Yeah, that's where he is. So they go, they find Saul. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there's no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! And then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and he wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord, probably where we got for Samuel. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. And Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he, Saul, kept silent. I like this about Saul. He starts well. He's quiet about it. He's humble. He is not presumptuous. That will change. (laughs) But for now, note this. The Holy Spirit has come upon Saul. What is his demeanor? Check me out. I am full of the Spirit and I can prove it to you. Or is Saul's demeanor to hide behind the bags? This man is covered by the Spirit of God, but he's not imposing. He's not self-congratulatory. He is not self-righteous. No, Saul is humble and quiet and unpretentious. And I submit to you that that is what someone looks like who has received the power gifts of the Holy Spirit. Someone who has truly had the Holy Spirit come upon them is going to be the least obvious person in the church. They're not going to be the standout. Because if you truly are covered with the power of the Holy Spirit, it'll make you shudder. It'll draw you back. It will humble you. Saul begins with the look of someone on whom God has poured His Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, 13, The Holy Spirit will not speak on His own initiative, but but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. And you know a church is Spirit-filled where Jesus is glorified. The church that talks more about the Holy Spirit than Jesus, I do not believe is truly Spirit-filled because the Holy Spirit will not do that. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. And the person who is most Spirit-filled, again, is often the least obvious because the gifts and the anointings of the Spirit exalt Jesus, not you, not me. So it's a great start for Saul. But I want you to listen really closely here and watch, stick with me, just a few more minutes. Chapter 11 is really important. Kind of, it's the tap for the whole thing here. Verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. 
And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. Okay, so Saul's anointing has happened. And, and the feast has happened and the people have all been called together and that's happening over on the west side of the Jordan River Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River it's an unprotected territory remember Reuben, Gad and half tribe of Manasseh all decided to settle on the east side that's where Jabesh Gilead is and this king of the Ammonites his name is Nahash and it's fascinating to me in fact again another study for another time but you could go over chapter 10 and 11 and you can see in the life of Saul pictures of the life of Jesus maybe we'll do that a week from Sunday because here we see Nahash the Ammonite and Nahash's name means serpent Nahash the serpent the serpent king of the Ammonites so the serpent now enters the picture Saul has just been anointed to be king and the serpent shows up Saul's over here with the people and the serpent begins to bite at the heel and by the way having the right eye gouged out as this Nahash threatens to do to the people of Jabesh Gilead having the right eye gouged out is not just an ugly thing it is a disabling thing for a warrior because for a warrior you've got your shield and you've got your sword if you're right handed and so you're fighting with the right hand you're shielding with the left your shield if it's up in front of you is covering here and if your right eye is gouged out you can't see where you're fighting you don't know where you're going so he determines that he's going to disable these people and verse 3 going on says the elders of Jabesh said to him let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel and then if there's no one to deliver us we will come out to you now it doesn't tell us this in the scripture but Nahash allows it he gives them their seven days you kind of think why would he do that why would this guy this, this serpent king of the Ammonites accept this proposal giving the people of Jabesh Gilead a chance to call out to Israel for help I'll tell you why because he doesn't believe help's going to come why not he knows something you know it too if you think back but to understand it you've got to remember the story that closes the book of Judges chapters 19, 20, and 21 it's a horrific story we studied it here before a Levite is traveling with his concubine and as this Levite tramples he stops overnight in the Benjamite town of Gabeah and there in Gabeah all the men of Gabeah they surround the house and they say let the man, the Levite send him out to us so that we can have our way with him and they're talking sexually so the guy who's protecting the Levite he's under this guy's covering and, and he doesn't want to do that so they send the Levite's concubine out where she is literally gang raped all night long until she's found dead on the doorstep the next morning remember the story the Levite picks her up throws her on the back of his donkey and goes home and when he gets home takes out a knife and cuts her into 12 pieces and he FedExes each one of these 12 pieces out to the 12 tribes of Israel and when they receive the peace of this concubine, all of Israel is absolutely horrified. This is how Judges concludes. <laughs> they cannot believe what they're seeing. And so they go up to fight against the people of Gabeah, and the tribe of Benjamin says, no, they're, they're one of us. The tribe of Benjamin decides they're going to stand up for the homosexual brothers. They're going to stand with them and fight with them. And Israel goes up against Benjamin, and they fight once, and they lose they fight a second time and they lose again and finally they go and they pray to the Lord and they give it to the Lord and on the third time in the third battle they wipe out the tribe of Benjamin with the exception of 600 guys who flee to the field 
They flee up into the rocks. They're hiding out. 600 men are left. And at this point, Israel realizes the tragedy that they have just entered into. They have an entire tribe of the twelve that is 600 men shy of being extinct. In fact, it's, it's going to be extinct because you've got 600 men. Who's going to go with the men to continue the family line of Benjamin? There's nobody left. The women, the children, were all wiped out in this bloody, bloody battle. So what do they do? Well, they, they hatch a plan. In fact, let me just read this to you. Judges chapter 21. They get their heads together and they start to think, as men will do, they hatch this scheme. And in verse 8 of Judges 21, it tells us that they said, Who is one of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? See, when the, when the 12 pieces of the concubine went out all over the place, they said, let's gather together at Mizpah, every single person in Israel, so we can go fight against Gibeah and, and Benjamin. Let's go. And they said, is there anyone who didn't show up when we put out the call for battle? And they realized, behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead, the same city that Nahash, the serpent king of the Ammonites, is now attacking. No one had come from there. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is a thing that you shall do. Utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. You know what they did with those 400 virgins? They gave them to the 600 guys who were left over from Benjamin. Now you can finish out reading the book of Judges. They found another 200 virgins in other places, figured that out too. Schemed their whole way through it. That's the history of Jabesh Gilead. This is the people who did not help their brothers when their brothers needed help. This is the city who refused to step in and be involved. And Nahash, the serpent king, (laughs) he understands this and he thinks just like our serpent, the world serpent, the devil thinks. And how's that? He believes the sins of the past will prevent the salvation of the future. Satan believes this, gang. All I have to do is remind them of the sins of their past and I can shatter their hopes for salvation to come. It's the sins of the past that will knock you down. It's the sins of the past that are so great you can't possibly be a recipient of grace. You can't possibly be someone that God would love. Your sins are too much. Jabesh Gilead. You didn't even help your brothers. And they're not going to help you. Go ahead. Call for help. I'll give you seven days. And then I'm going to come tear your eyes out. The sins of the past prevent the salvation of the future. But gang, in Christ, the only past, the only past that determines my future is the cross. That past determines my future. That past promises my salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2.3 that we were, past tense, by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Present. Past, I was dead. Present, I'm alive together with Christ. Future, He says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So absolutely sure is the word of the Lord that He speaks as though it's already done. You're already there. Now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Let me piece this in here. 
It says, The messengers came to Gabeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices, and they wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? And they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. What does Saul do? I love this. Verse 6. The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became very angry. And it's a righteous and a holy anger. And by the way, anger is not a sin. The Bible's clear about that. Saul sa- or Paul says in Ephesians 4.26 Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. But anger in and of itself is not sin. And there is a time to be angry, a righteous anger. And we see this now well up in Saul. It is the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. He gets angry, filled with a godly rage, a godly anger. But he doesn't let the sun go down on his anger. He's upset because the Spirit's now on him and his brothers are in trouble. But remember this. Saul is a Benjaminite from Gabeah. Gabeah, the town that killed the, the concubine. That's where Saul is from. In other words, Saul's lineage was saved by the virgins from Jabesh Gilead. His whole family line is connected to the people of Jabesh Gilead who are threatened right now and the people of Gabeah come from that connection. The virgins of Jabesh Gilead married the survivors of Benjamin and Gabeah to continue the family line of Saul and Nahash the serpent king has miscalculated something. He figured Israel's not going to show up. He did not count on Saul. Saul is angry about this. He is spirit-filled and hopping mad. And verse 7 says, He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. I wonder, that's reminiscent of the concubine, isn't it? Cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. You want to keep plowing next year? You better show up for this battle, Saul's saying. So the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. Verse 8, He numbered them in Bedzek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you. They're talking now to Nahash. Tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So the next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp and the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Quick side note here, Saul was not a soldier. What was he doing when word came from Jabesh Gilead that they needed help? He was plowing. Saul is a farmer, gang. He doesn't have the training. He doesn't have the background. This is not a fighting man. This is a man who's fighting mad and a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I point that out simply to say this, gang, when the Lord calls you to a place of ministry, understand that formal training is not necessarily required. It's not the issue when God is calling, where God guides, God provides. 
And Saul is spirit-filled. And the Spirit of God is a giver of gifts. And I have to share this, this story with you. Last night we're gathered together. I'm going to tell you ahead of time what you'll find out on Sunday that, that Joe Phillips is going to be is joining our team of shepherds. He's going to be one of our shepherds here at the bridge. And so we gathered the shepherds together with Joe, called him in there, and he and Karen, and Karen was freaking out, white as a sheet, scared all day long. I thought it was great. And we sit down together, and we, and we begin talking about this. And, and Joe said something, and I asked his permission to share this with you. Yesterday was also the 10-year anniversary of the death of his brother. Older brother. And he began talking about his older brother. And saying, you know, what's interesting to me, here we are 10 years later, to the day that his brother died. His brother was an incredibly godly man, by Joe's description. He was a superintendent in, in Sunday school. He was a, a deacon in the church. No, he's a Gideon's president of the Gideons. This guy was a servant of the Lord. And Joe's words, and I say this mainly to embarrass him, Joe's words were, I couldn't understand why he died instead of me. And here we are ten years after the fact and Joe's being asked to be a shepherd at the bridge and, he, and he's just shaking his head. It should have been my brother. He's the one who was qualified. He's the one who was doing it. He's the one who had the history and the background and, and the knowledge and was president of the Gideons. He's the one who was doing all of this. And Joe's saying, and I'm still here and I'm the one being asked instead of him. And Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus and you became to us, Paul says, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so if you're called to ministry and you're sitting there going, it can't be me, I have no clue what I'm doing, right on, then God is going to be even more glorified in your life than He would in the life of someone who is eminently more qualified than you are. Saul was not qualified to be a warrior king. He was a farmer. But filled with the Holy Spirit, this man was gifted for battle and took on the serpent king and wiped him off the map. This is how God works. The strength of the Spirit is always better than the best of the flesh. Well, let's finish up. Verse 12, the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Who are they referring to? Back in verse 27 of chapter 10, they're referring to the naysayers. The ones who said, How can this one deliver us? Well, now Saul has proven himself, and so the people around Saul are calling for the death of the guys who didn't believe him. They're saying, let's, let's take those guys and hang them up. Let's, let's skewer them. Let's take them out. Who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, uh-uh. Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. I told you he starts well. Saul is thinking like a godly man. You don't need to silence the critics because the Lord will do it for you. And Saul realizes that. We don't have to kill the critics. God's already won the battle. The victory is in his hands and the glory belongs to him. 
And the critics are already shut up because of what the Lord has done. We don't have to do a single thing. That's all that's needed to shut up the naysayers, gang, is the glory of the Lord. You let Him glorify Himself in your life. And don't worry about what anybody else has to say about it. Verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And I'm going to tell you the most important thing of all the teaching tonight. This is the thing to hear. This is why you're still here. This is the thing. At this point, Saul had already been anointed. He had already received the Holy Spirit. He had already prophesied. All these things had happened. Samuel had already declared his authority to reign in front of all the people. All of this had already gone on. And he had even just won a great victory. But none of these things were the unifying factor under uh, under Saul's kingship. His ability to, to prophesy did not unify the people of Israel. The authority given to him by Samuel did not unify the people of Israel. And as we read through this, we might say, okay, if it wasn't the warfare or the power or the prophecy or even the knowledge that Saul was anointed to be king, if it wasn't any of these things, what was it that unified Israel into a kingdom under Saul as their first king? And I'll tell you what it was. It was love. It's love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And when the people saw the love of Saul for the people of Jabesh Gilead, when they saw his passion for even the least of these among Israel it united them like nothing else could at this point now all of Israel say I can follow this guy if he'll go save the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead on the other side of the Jordan if people matter to him like that I can follow that it was Saul's love when they saw this even the least of his brothers in Israel when they saw he cared they said we can go after him. Authoritative anointed ministry. As Paul, as Saul was anointed for this. Authoritative anointed ministry requires that we recognize the care of our Father. That we relish communion with the Son. That we understand the Holy Spirit come upon us. His power empowering us to do what He's called us to do. But you can add this last one to the list. Anointed authoritative ministry in the Lord is always compelled by love. Compelled by love. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, The love of Christ compels us. And that's the deal. Saul's anointed. But it wasn't until they saw his love that they accepted his authority as a servant of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help us to retain what's important. Help us to keep what you have for us. Each individually, Lord, we're all in different places. And yet we all desperately need you. So I pray we would not just be hearers of your word tonight, but doers of your word. 
Lord, there are some here tonight who are not accepting the ministry you're calling them to because they don't think they're worthy. They don't think they're qualified. When you whisper into their ears, Father, open, open, uncover the ears of these who feel that way and speak into their lives. And may we all learn to live lives that bring glory to Jesus first and foremost. Father, by loving you and loving our neighbors as ourselves, in Jesus' name. Amen.